far as this class is concerned, this is a three-part series on the character of Shimshon, who is a very interesting character. I wanted to say there are many different pieces to this. The main focus, of course, will be the actual story of Shimshon, Samson narrative, which appears towards the end of the Book of Shoftim. Book of Shoftim is a book about judges. It doesn't necessarily mean they're sitting in a court and judging. One does not get the impression, I would say, when you read the story of Samson, that he's spending a lot of time inside a, uh, a, uh, a, 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 a baiting. It doesn't seem to be what he does for the most part. But it is embedded, the story of Samson is embedded in the book we call Shoftim, which probably we should translate not so much as judges, though there may be some judicial piece to it as well, but it's kind of a charismatic leader. A Shofet is a charismatic leader, and the important point about the Shofet, or one of the important points about the Shofet, is that the Shofet, unlike the king, the king is different. The king is one leader for everybody, and the king should not have any particular family or tribal connections. There's one leader for everybody, and on top of that, the king is is, is dynastic. That is to say, the king passes down the kingship to somebody who inherits the king, typically his son, well not always his son, but typically his son. So the king is two things. The king is, from one perspective, forever. The kingship is eternal. And the second point, is not only is the kingship eternal, but there's one king for everybody. So if you talk about one leader for everybody who is eternal, and you take out the word king, you put a different word in, little word, the little word would be God. And that's the reason that, you know, that the, something very problematic about the king. The prophet Shmuel, book of Shmuel is about kingship. The prophet Samuel was not crazy about kingship, which would be the understatement of the century. He was very much opposed to it because he felt that kingship is a kind of heresy. He's opposed to it for other reasons as well. That is not true necessarily, not true at all, of the so-called judge. The judge is, first of all, not eternal. There's no passing down the judgeship to your descendants or to somebody else. And furthermore, the judge always carries with it a kind of tribal caste. The judge is chosen for the moment, as it were, coming from a particular place. It's not about everybody, and it's not about always. So that's the book of Judges. The book of Judges has a set of these charismatic leaders. The last one who's mentioned in the book of Judges, the Sefer Shoftim, is this character Shimshon. And in many ways the most interesting. First of all, there's nobody else like him in the Bible. I mean, there are other people who have interesting connections to Shimshon, which we'll get to. But there's nobody like Shimshon. And there are two things that Shimshon has which are very unusual. The first is, well the first is his enormous strength. Shimshon Hagibor is called. He has a kind of supernatural strength. Let's start with that. That's one key feature of Shimshon. And the second feature of Shimshon, which is very interesting, which we'll begin with today, is that for whatever reason, he is chosen before he's born. That per se is not necessarily so strange, but what is peculiar is he is a, a Nazarite. He is a Nazarite. Shimshon Hanazir, he's, he's, in other words, He's a Nazarite from birth. This is a very important point. He's born a Nazir. That is to say, his mother already is prohibited to drink wine. 
and not to eat other things as well as we'll see shortly. In other words, even in the even in the womb, as a fetus, actually, Shimshon is already a nazir. The story of Shimshon, which appears in several chapters at the end of Shoftim, raises a host of questions. There is a book written, well-known book, by Zakovich, called Chaye Shimshon. Chaye Shimshon. Zakovich is actually is an important uh, Bible scholar in Israel. Very important on many levels. Um, I don't think that the book actually <coughs> gets to the core problem. But having said all that, he raises many interesting questions to Zakovich. His the failure of the book is is is, 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 is this. It's actually very important. It's a story I've mentioned many times. Anybody who's read Sherlock Holmes, it's my favorite book actually, <laughs> remembers the first Sherlock Holmes story, Study in Scarlet. In that story, so Holmes of course solves the case as he always does, and then his psychic Watson says to him essentially, had you, had you, had you, had you figured it out? He says, so Holmes says, it's actually the case was very simple. The case was a very simple case, very straightforward, he says, but the problem in the case was the following. The problem in this particular case was not that we didn't have evidence, but we had too much evidence. And the trick, he says, to solving the case is to figure out of the many pieces of evidence, which is the one important piece of evidence. Once you, once you, once you solve the one important problem, everything else falls in place. And actually, that's true of reading a text as well. The story of Shimshon, the failure of Zakovich is very simple. He doesn't understand what, what the, he raises many problems. They're all good problems. But he doesn't solve the main problem. And if you don't solve the main problem, you won't solve your problems. There's one main problem in the story of Shimshon, which is this, to start it. The main problem, the core issue in the story of Shimshon is the following. Why does God need a Nazir to save the Jewish people? That's the core problem. We don't find in other places, the other judges are not Nazarites. The other judges are seem to be relatively normal, though flawed human beings. Well, it's normal, I guess. But why is it so important that before Samson is chosen, he, God's messenger goes to the mother and instructs her that she must take on the, the Nazarite practice before her son is born. Why is that necessary? If you solve that problem, you will solve the other problems that fall in place. Zakovich fails to solve that, doesn't understand that actually, and therefore he fails. And we will set out to solve that simple, it's very simple actually. And in, because he doesn't understand the problem, he also fails to read properly the first chapter. So we will solve all these problems. That much we'll solve. And we're going to resolve everything. I can, I should be well. Yes? Study in Scarlet, the first, the first story, study in Scarlet. It's when they first meet. Study in Scarlet, yes. Now, let us take a look first of all, where is the Shimshon story found? So, Sefer Shoftim, it's very interesting, chapter 13. It's one of, it's actually the Haftorah. This chapter is the Haftorah for Parashat Naso, which has within it the story of the, the, the rules of the, of the Nazir. You can't read the story of Shimsha without first reading the story of the Nazir, obviously. So we're going to presume knowledge of the Nazir. Now, one other point about a method here, which is obvious, and that is, 
The story of Shimshon is not floating by itself in the air. The story of Shimshon is embedded within the book of Judges. He's actually the last judge. Because the book of Judges has essentially two main parts to it. One is the list of judges. And then the last five chapters are a kind of epilogue or coda in which two stories are found with one main theme. Namely, that in those days there is no king in Israel. Everybody does whatever they want. If we have a chance to explore this, one of the interesting questions is when you have a book, say, and then a coda at the end, is there a relationship between the coda and the book? The coda is a standalone piece. By the way, speaking of Zakovich, not to say bad things, he's done a lot, but he makes another terrible mistake in the, in, the, in, the, in the book of Shmuel, too. He doesn't understand this point. Because you can demonstrate, which is correct, that the coda... You see, the book of Shmuel and the book of Shoftim have a coda. C-O-D-A, a coda. They have an, and that coda is actually a piece that has its own integrity. You see that from the internal structures. For example, the coda of the book of Shmuel, which has four chapters, has a very particular A, B, C, C, B, A structure. And that structure says to us that you can read this, this little four chapters as a standalone piece. That's certainly correct. But that's not to say that the coda of the book does not directly connect to the book. In fact, if you think about it logically, it would make total sense that the coda would be connected to the, to the book. And that's very important towards an understanding of the book of Sefer Shmuel. The book of Shoftim also has a coda. It has the two stories at the end, obviously. Anybody who reads it sees it immediately. In those days, there was no king. There are two stories. And the last verse of the book. In, the, in, the, in, their, in those days, there was no king. Everybody did. Everybody did. What was fitting in their eyes. So that is actually the way the book ends. The book calls for a kingship. The book says that with the society that we have is anarchy. But Ish Hayashar says a very interesting expression, because Ish Hayashar B'Enaviyaseh, not only is found in the book of Tvarim, but it's found specifically in conjunction with a hero Shimshon, something that the Mishnah picked up on. Well, we will get to these problems. Let's just start step by step. And it should be very interesting, these three little sessions. Let's start with chapter 13. Since we're picking on Zakovich this morning, he makes a terrible blunder in the first verses, and that is a terrible mistake. You see, here's a very important point. What he knows, which is correct, everybody knows. When you read the book of Judges, you will see that there is a pattern that appears many times in the book of Judges. Anybody who studied it, even in third grade, notices immediately the following pattern. Israel is sinning. God is sending somebody to punish Israel. 
Israel cries out for help and God sends some deliverer to help them. That's a pattern that appears in this book, I don't know, six times or seven times, from the beginning until the end. Now, the point is when you, the pattern becomes so ingrained in you that sometimes we fail to notice what are the most important pieces of the pattern. And one of the most important functions of the pattern is to be able, is to allow us to recognize when the pattern is actually broken. The truth of the matter is that our professor saw this as part of the pattern. When you actually look at it carefully, you will notice that it's not part of the pattern. The pattern does not hold in this particular case. Because in this case, Israel continues to do evil. That's correct. That's the first step. By your name Hashem biat Lishtim, God hands them over. That's the second step. And the next thing says that there was this man from the tribe of Don, and God's angel or messenger appeared to the woman and gives her instructions and says to her that your child will be a Nazir, he will redeem Israel from the Philistines. So of the four steps, one, two, three, four, the sin, the punishment, the crying out, and the redeemer, we have three. We have the sin, we have the punishment, we have the Redeemer. What we don't have in the story is the crying out. Zakovich failed to note that properly. And that is the key to, one of the real keys to understanding the story. Very simply this, Israel does not request redemption. Very important point. They don't request redemption for whatever reason. It would appear later in the Shimshon story that they don't request redemption because they have accommodated themselves to the situation. Remember later on, when Shimshon is making trouble, the tribe of Judah comes and says to Shimshon, we have to hand you over. What are you doing? Don't you know the Philistines are ruling over us? What are you making trouble for? Says Samson to them, you can tie me up, but do not, do not kill me yourselves. You can hand me over. So they tie him up. But the point is, the tribe of Yehuda. And the book of Judges begins with the tribe, who shall lead us into battle? The tribe of Yehuda Yahweh, who shall fight first? The leading tribe of Israel makes it very clear, we have no interest in your making trouble. The Philistines are the kings, the Moshalim, you live with the Philistines. So over here it's also very interesting that we don't find, in all the other cases, we find people crying out to God. In this particular case, we don't find people crying out to God. Interesting in this connection, by the way, is the previous time we have the pattern. Throughout the book, God is losing God's patience over here, you know? Can't we blame God too much for this? The previous time we have the pattern is before the previous judge. If you turn to page 541 in the JPS, which is chapter 10, verse number 6, so there we have the sin again. And Israel continued to do evil. And they worshipped the Baalim, and they worshipped the Ashtarot, and they worshipped the God of Aram, and they worshipped the God of Sidon, and they worshipped the God of Moab, and they worshipped the God of Ammon, and they worshipped the God of the Philistines, and they abandoned God and didn't serve God. And God was angry. 
and God handed them over to the Philistines and Ammon. 18 years. And then in verse number 10, see verse number 10, by Hashem, they cried out to God. So there we have the third part. You have the sin, you have the punishment, you have the crying out. With God save us, we cried out, as we did so many earlier times in the book of Judges. God's answer in verse 11 is, listen, I took you, I saved you from Egypt, and from the Amori, and Ammon, and Plishtim, and Sidonim, and Amalek, and Ma- Every time you cry out to me, I'm saving you. And you have abandoned me. I'm not going to save you anymore. Go and cry out to the other gods that you chose. Maybe they'll save you. Right? So verse number 15, So Israel says to God, we have sins. Do whatever you want, but save us this time. And they removed their idols from their midst, and they served God. It's a very powerful statement. And God could not bear the miseries. God is suffering. Suffering God. God is suffering with them. And then we have the story of Yiftach. It sounds in the text as if Yiftach is actually God's response to the people crying out. Even though God said, get somebody else, but God cannot contain God. That's what it sounds like. God is suffering with us. The empathetic God. Save us this one time. This is the last time we cry out. The next time we're not crying out at all. So Shimshon is not sent because Israel asks for Shimshon. Shimshon is sent for some other reason. Not as a response to our request. Why is Shimshon sent? This is a very important point because in my opinion it is related to the question of the Nazir. We have to understand the Nazir. You can't understand Shimshon without understanding the Nazir, which itself is a fascinating topic. What is the Nazir? So let me say that what is the Nazir is an interesting question. Let me say the following... the following... uh, thought about the Nazir. The, the, The Torah says the Parsha of the Nazir appears in the book of Bamidbar. It's the book that we're in the middle of reading now. And the Torah says the following. In the Chumash, chapter 6, chapter 5 or 6? Six? 6, chapter 6, I think. Bamidbar chapter 6, take a look, you'll see. And in Bamidbar chapter 6, the Torah says the following. It appears right after, what page? Page 292 in the JPS translation. The previous chapter talks about the Sota. Chapter 6 talks about the Nazim. God said to Moshe, Tell the people, If a man or woman, they translate explicitly says, pronounces the vow of the Nazarite to become a Nazir to God, then the Torah spells out the rules of the Nazarite. The, Nazar- <coughs> the Nazarite must abstain from <coughs> wine, strong drink, whatever, shechar, great, great products. That's number one. Number two, the Nazarite is not permitted to cut his or her hair. And number three, 
the Nazarite is not permitted to come into contact with the dead, any dead, even his own family members. Those essentially are the rules of the Nazarite. It's very striking. The parasha begins by telling us <coughs> this applies to a man or a woman. Isha Isha. You can have a male Nazarite or a female Nazarite. Now the question is, what is the nature of this Nazir? How do we understand the Nazir? I say there are two general approaches to the Nazir which are diametrically opposed to each other. One, the two ways to see this, this person. One is to see the Nazir as a, let's say a standard Jew. A standard Jew, but who wants to be holy. So this person takes upon herself or himself additional commandments, additional abstentions. And you can interpret the abstentions in a variety of different ways. But the Torah calls the Nazarite Kadosh. So separate, holy, separate, or whatever. But fundamentally, one way to see it is to use this. If every Jew has 613 commandments, the Nazarite has 616 commandments. If you stand a Jew, it doesn't drink wine. It doesn't go to funerals. That's one general way to see the Nazir. That approach, I believe, emerges from the Mishnah. I believe that the Mishnah is a separate, interesting conversation. But I think the Mishnah basically was not crazy about the Nazir. The Gemara wasn't crazy about the Nazir either. But there's an attempt, I think, to interpret the Parsha of Nazir as simply a, 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 an expansion of, 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 of normative practice. The Chumash actually itself is very interesting about the Nazir. There's something striking about the Parsha of Nazir in chapter 6 of Bamidbar. And that is that about half of this chapter, at least, is dedicated to the question of how does one terminate Nazirut. It's a very strange Parsha. Half of it is dedicated to termination. And what that says to us, I think, is that the Chumash, while allowing for the Nazir, Chumash allows for the Nazir, but it allows for the Nazir on a temporary basis. Because at the end of the day, there's something problematic about the Nazirite. Could be many things problematic about the Nazirite. But one of them has to do, perhaps, with the fact that the Nazarite declares herself or himself to be very special. In fact, when you look at the parsha of the Nazir, what comes to mind immediately is the high priest. Somebody wakes up one morning, maybe some woman from the tribe of Zavulan or something like this, I don't know, and she says, you know, I want to be the Kohen Gadol. So the rules of the Nazir, many of them, the Farshim see it this way, and it's a good reading says, the high priest does not come in contact with the dead. I want to be a Kohen Gadol. Says the Chumash, you want to be a Kohen Gadol, you can be a Kohen Gadol, but you have to understand it's only temporary. So the Chumash spends a lot of time because A, you're not the Kohen Gadol, and B, you're also separating yourself out from the larger community. You, you have, remember, the book of Midbar is very strict about who you are and where you are. It's a book with the first ten chapters, there's an enormous amount of space on being counted, 
being counted amongst your tribe and living with your tribe. Tribes are set up a very particular place in conjunction with each other and in conjunction with the with the with the Mishkan. So you want to be special, you want to be holy, it's great, wonderful thing, but it's only temporary. You go back at the end of the parsha, the Chumash does not spell how many day, how many days it is. That the Chumash doesn't say, but it's a it's a it's a temporary state. The Mishnah already talks about how temporary. Stam thirty days, a month, whatever it is. Now, so that from that itself, one gets the sense that there's something problematic about about the zirut because the Torah itself limits the nazir. More to the point, when one studies the commentaries on the Torah and the, and the Talmud, for that matter, in particular, are two of the great medievals in our tradition, Jewish tradition, which is Rashi on one hand and the Ramban on the other, they have two diametrically opposite viewpoints about the Nazir. Rashi is not crazy about the Nazir. Rashi thinks the Nazir is problematic. The Ramban is the opposite. The Ramban thinks the Nazir is wonderful. But they already see the fighting about the very nature and within the text there are supports for all sides. On one hand, as the Ramban notes, the Torah calls the Nazir Kadosh. He's holy. Kadosh is one of those words that's always good. It's always good. Rashi, so he's Kadosh. Rashi, though, thinks there's something problematic about the Nazir for a variety of reasons in the text, one of which is at the end of the culmination of his Nazarite vow, among other things, he brings a sin offering, which Rashi doesn't necessarily mean he sinned, but the Midrash certainly takes it that way. There is something problematic about the Nazir. Let's leave it at that for now. Now, let's, get, let's now come to, Sh- to Shimshon. Anyway, this is one view of the Nazir. One view of the Nazir, standard Jew, instead of 613, he's got 616. That's one way to read the Nazir. There is another way to read the Nazir, which emerges from a set of biblical texts, and that is to see the Nazir not as your standard Jew at all. The word Nazir, in fact, the word Nazir is an interesting word. What does the word actually mean? So one definition of the word Nazir has to do with being separate, moved out, separated out from the others. The Nazir is somebody who is separate from the people. The Chumash is truly separate from the people because of these additional stringencies, etc. Not cutting the hair, not drinking wine, not coming in contact with the dead. But if we leave out the details of the Nazir in chapter 6 of the book of Bamidbar and think more globally about the Nazir, then we might go down a different path, which is to say that the Nazir is not just it's not a standard practicing Jew who adds a couple of commandments, but rather than the commandments themselves, the, or the violations, the prohibitions, are typical and emblematic something totally different which is the Nazir is somebody who places himself or herself outside the community and in thinking about this in the term Nazir before we get to Samson who's extreme obviously but we have someone else in our tradition in the Chumash who's called the Nazir in fact this person's called the Nazir in the Torah twice both by his father and then by, by Moshe, who's the talking not about this specific person, 
But Moses blesses the tribes. The tribes are blessed in the Chumash both by Moshe at the end of the Torah, and Zotah Bracha, but also individuals are blessed by Yaakov in the end of Sefer Breshit. And the particular person who is called the Nazir in each of those two cases, the identical language, is our beloved Yosef. Tavoto Rosh Yosef Ulukad called Nazir Echav, Moshe said in Zotah Bracha, and Yaakov has similar language in Parashat Vayichi in chapter 49, that Yaakov said about Yosef. This will be at page 108, 109 actually. Tiena the JPS translation, which is generally speaking very unreliable in terms of being precise. It's not a precise translation. JPS translates on the brow of the elect of his brothers. Nazir they translate as elect. Maybe, I don't see that. Let's see how they translate in, in, in Devarim. Are they consistent? They're imprecise. Let's see if they're inconsistent as well. Let's see. Will we have Yosef here? Yes, consistent. On the crown of the elect of his brothers, called called Nazir Echav. So Nazir Echav, they take as the elected one, special elected one of the brothers. But the truth of the matter is, Nazir Echav could well mean what it typically means. Be Nazru because to separate. Joseph is certainly the one who was separate from his brothers. In fact, you think about Joseph in terms of this Joseph story, I think it's the story that the little vignette that sums up Joseph in his relationship to other people would be the story when Yosef is in Egypt as the viceroy of Egypt, the brothers come down and they're eating with, they're invited to eat with him. So the Chumash says, if you remember, they set up three, three spaces to eat the Egyptians eat at one place, the brothers eat separately from Joseph, and the Egyptians eat separately because they could not eat with the Hebrews' bread, it says. They couldn't eat with the Hebrews' bread for the abomination to the Egyptians. What's interesting is, who are the Hebrews the Egyptians are not eating with? It sounds like the brothers plus Joseph. In other words, Joseph on one hand does, can't eat with his brothers. He's the viceroy of Egypt. He's not going to eat with the brothers. On the other hand, he doesn't eat with the Egyptians either because in Egypt he's a Jew and in Canaan he's in, in, and with the brothers he's the Egyptian so this idea of Joseph being separated from everybody basically but the Nazir, Joseph as one who's separate both from Mitzrayim and both from the brothers in that image you have of these tables which he's sitting by himself he can't eat with anybody else what's interesting, so let's just for a moment reflect on this idea of Yosef as one who's separate from the brothers what do we know about Yosef in terms of his separateness from the brothers? Uh, first of all, the separateness from the brothers is a function in the Chumash, A, of his... He doesn't get along well with his brothers, let's put it that way. I mean, he, the brothers don't actually like him. The brothers actually not just don't like him. At one point, the brothers try to harm him. Actually, the brothers try to kill him. 
they end up either causing his sale or directly selling him. It's not totally clear. It sounds like they caused the sale, but their intention was to, to harm him. That's number one. But then Yosef has another function. In other words, he's separate from the brothers in the sense that he doesn't get along with them. He's also separate from the brothers in that he has a particular mission. One might say God has a mission for him. And the mission of Yosef, whether he chooses to accept the mission or not, is not really the point. But his mission, basically, in the Chumash, is what? I mean, depends if you ask Joseph what his mission is, depending what time of his career you ask him the question, he has his answer. His, his answer, basically, one, he has, there, are two, there are two ways to see the mission. One is which Yosef himself says twice. Why he's in Egypt in the first place. He says to the brothers why he's in Egypt. He says, you better do me harm, he says, but God thought it for good. To keep a people alive. Joseph sees his mission. He says it twice. That I was sent down to Egypt before you. I was sent to keep you alive in time of famine. That's what Joseph says twice. He says it earlier, and he says it at the very end. But then, at the very end of the book of Breshit, he added something additional. Which he says to his brothers, the brothers think Joseph wants to kill him, kill them. Joseph is crying. So listen, he says, I'm going to take care of you, but I want you to swear to me. And I impose upon you an oath that after I die, you will take my body back and bury me together with you in the land of Canaan, in the land that God has promised to give to Abraham, Yisuk, and Yaakov. And someday God will redeem us, he says. I want you know someday God is going to redeem us. So the question is how much Joseph understands this or not, but we, the student of the Torah, when we read the story and we ask ourselves, what is his mission? What is Joseph's mission? It's a mission that God is sending, God sends Joseph to Egypt. It's very important to remember that, that the brothers cause his sale to Egypt, that's true. That Joseph ends up in Mitzrayim because of the brothers, but it's equally true that God is sending Joseph to Egypt. In fact, the Chumash tells us this pretty much explicitly, that God is sending Joseph to Egypt. Where does the Chumash tell us explicitly that it's God who sends Joseph to Egypt? I don't say explicitly, but I think it's clear. Where is it? The ish is correct, of course. The ish is superfluous. Joseph is searching for his brothers, and then an ish, this mysterious ish, goes over to Joseph. He says, what are you looking for? My brothers, for your brothers aren't here. Your brothers went to Dotan. Right? He sends Joseph to his brothers. He sends Joseph to his, almost to his doom. Because when they see him from a distance, they determine to kill him. Why is the Ish there altogether? Who is the Ish? Komish could easily have said Joseph could not find him in Shechem. He found him in a different place. He approaches them. They conspired to kill him. But the Ish actually in the Chumash, just as the Ish in the case of Jacob wrestling with the Ish, is there in the case of Yaakov to prevent him from entering. But Yaakov overcomes the Ish in that story. In the second instance, though, the Ish is victorious. The Ish sends Joseph out. He say he, Joseph misses his stop at Shechem. Shechem, of course, is always the entry point to the land. And 
Jacob sent Joseph from Hebron to Shechem. So in the opposite direction. You always in the Chumash enter at Shechem and go to Hebron. But Joseph is sent from Hebron to Shechem. If you miss your stop, where are you? You're out. So the Ish is sending him out and Joseph can't overcome the Ish. And Joseph can't reconcile with his brothers. So the Chumash is saying something very important. Joseph ends up in Egypt not just because of human failure, but because it's God's plan. And God's plan is covenantal. Because God has already promised Abraham that his descendants will be strangers and oppressed and enslaved in a land not theirs. It's part of the covenantal process. So if we ask ourselves, why is Joseph in Egypt? There are two true answers. One is human failure. It's a product, a consequence of human behavior. Then there's another answer. Because God wants, him to, wants to send him there. God has a plan. And the plan involves enslavement. So if we ask ourselves the question, Yosef, why are you here? His answer, I'm here to save you. I'm here to feed you. I'm here to sustain you. That's true. But there's also a second true answer. I'm here to enslave you. I am the first slave in Egypt, and you follow, and I bring everybody else down with me. This is how we end up in Mitzrayim in the first place. In other words, this is Joseph. What Joseph represents is that God has chosen Joseph because Joseph has a task, either known to himself or unbeknownst to himself. Yosef has a task. The Chumash makes that clear in other places as well. I'll tell you another way the Chumash makes it obvious. That Joseph is there because God is using Joseph. And that is very strange business. Joseph comes down to Egypt in chapter 39 of Breshit. I mean, he's sent down to the end of 37. In 39, Yosef Hurad Mitzrayim. He is born in Mitzrayim by a fellow named Potiphar. And who's a very important officer of Pharaoh. He's the chief butcher of Egypt, whatever that means. Vahi Hashem et Yosef, says the Chumash in chapter 39, Hashem was with Yosef. Vahi ish batzriach. Vayar Adonav ki Hashem ito. And his master saw that Hashem was with him. What's interesting about that verse? You know what it is? It's an interesting verse. Here's what's interesting. From the time, even earlier in the Chumash, that particular name of God is never used by the Chumash. I forget where it stops. I think in chapter 35. From the moment Joseph goes, even before that, Yosef in Mitzrayim, the name that's used always is Elohim. The only exception to the rule outside of chapter 39 is Jacob's prayer, blessing, we shall want Hashem. Outside of that, it's always Elohim. God never speaks in Egypt. And the name Hashem never appears in Egypt. Not through all these stories. Except for that one place. Why did the Chumash suddenly, out of nowhere, use this particular name to the extent that Potiphar, the Egyptian master, sees that Hashem Ito. But the name Hashem carries with it often a very personal sense. Elohim is much more broad. Elohim is more general. But Hashem is a personal God. Says the Chumash, God is taking a personal interest in Yosef. Whether he's in the house of Potiphar, whether he's in jail. God is 
God has, but God has a plan for Joseph. God will use Joseph to fulfill God's covenantal plan. So the idea of the Nazir, get back to Joseph the Nazir, the Nazir is one who has a very particular mission. In the case of Yosef, it's, it's part of God's plan. It's not clear, actually, interesting question, whether Joseph is fully aware of God's plan. I, I, don't, I don't get the sense that he's in the, in the beginning of his career, he actually understands why he's there. He thinks he's there to, you know, to feed everybody, which is very noble. But the idea that it's part of covenantal destiny, one does not get that sense. Now, in terms of Yosef the Nazir, something else very striking about Yosef. Something else curious about Yosef. God never actually talks to Yosef. Let's, let's be, God actually always speaks to, after Yaakov, God doesn't speak to anybody. But it's not, I wouldn't say that God doesn't communicate with Joseph at all. God does communicate with Joseph, but not through direct speech. God communicates with Joseph through, I would say, dreams. Through dreams, and not just dreams. But what's interesting about Yosef, and we don't find this anyplace else in Sefer Breshit, is that, that we have dreams elsewhere in Breshit. What we don't have in Sefer Breshit is this idea that the dream is something which lends itself to an interpretation and that the interpretation is a product of human ingenuity maybe divine inspiration as well but the idea that the communication is, some, is one that has to be deciphered and that Joseph is not just a dreamer but a kind of interpreter of dreams in other words the interpreter of dream means that the message is given to a particular person that's what it means to interpret dreams. It's the same message. Pharaoh has a dream. But he has no idea what, he, what he's dreaming. He has no idea what it actually means. There's only one person who actually can understand the message. That's something specific to Joseph. Now I mention these things because this idea of separation, the idea of being chosen for a mission, the idea of being somebody that doesn't necessarily get along with other people, the idea that the communication is through requires an act of interpretation. That's Joseph. There's somebody else who fits all of those categories too. Every one of them. In space. And that is Shimshon. It's true that in the case of Shimshon it's not about dreams. Shimshon has a different a different uh, a different phenomenon appears in the Shimshon stories. It's not dreams, but Shimshon has something else, which is riddles. Shimshon's riddles, epigrams and riddles. We'll see it. Shimshon is chosen by God. The people do not require Shimshon, by the way. As we have seen, they have zero interest in Shimshon. They have zero interest in being redeemed. Let's start with that. They couldn't care less. For whatever reason, it's God who's interested in sending Shimshon. But now we come to the more basic point about Shimshon, which is this. How do we understand Shimshon as a, as a, as a, as a character? How do we understand Shimshon the Nazir? And Shimshon the Nazir strikes me that even though he's the Nazir, if you think about it, he seems to violate what it means to be a Nazir. 
I'm not even talking about coming in contact with the dead, which he does all the time. I mean something else. There are two in the Chumash, two main points about the Nazir in the Torah. Two. One is, that is Nazirut in the Chumash, it's the second point, is that it is temporary. As I said before, the Chumash spends half the time describing how you terminate Nazirut. But when it comes to Shimshon, it's not temporary. Shimshon is the Nazir all of his days. Yes, he does break the he breaks the Nazirut. That's true. We'll get to that. But fundamentally, the obligation of Shimshon is to be a Nazir all of his days. That's the second point. The first point is much more striking, and a very important point about the, the Rambam noticed this, by the way. Rambam says this. But it's obvious to all of us. In the Chumash, a Nazir is a function of what? How does one become a Nazir in the Chumash? You take a vow. That's the, you pronounce the vow of the Nazirite. The Nazirite is a vow. It's a function of a vow. A vow means something you take upon yourself. But in the Chumash, actually, Shimshon never took the vow altogether. The vow is not taken by Samson. He's, the vow is taken by his mother before he's born. Not even the vow of the mother to take a vow either. The mother is instructed by the angel that she is to behave in a certain way. For your child that's born to you will be a Nazir. It sounds like the child that's born to you was a Nazir before he's born. So how does this work? It's exactly the opposite. It's not something you take upon yourself. It's something that is imposed from without. So how do we understand this? How do, we, how do we understand this idea of the Nazir of Shimshon? It's his whole life. It's not something he chose. It's something imposed by God upon him. And the mission statement, as we like to use that term, is clear from the beginning. It's clear what the mission is. The mission is, he shall save Israel from the Philistines. That is his mission. So the question is, how does one read the story of Shimshon? So I would suggest the following. That when you read the plain text of, the, of Sefer Shoftim, what it sounds like to me, this is what I hypothesize, is that it's not that Shimshon is your standard Jew who has three more mitzvot. One doesn't get the sense in the story of Shimshon, by the way, certainly the, the book of Shoftim does not deal with his, with his observances. It doesn't seem to be doesn't have a normal Jewish lifestyle, let's put it that way, okay? In fact, when you read the story of Shimshon, I would go further. He doesn't seem to be a Jew altogether. What kind of Jew is he? He doesn't live among the Jews. He doesn't behave in any Jewish way. He, he marries the Philistines, of course. He lives among the Philistines. The point is very simple. He has one mission in this world. His mission is to fight against the Philistines. Fight God's war. He's not, not, the Jews don't want to be delivered, by the way. So, therefore, God cannot send a Jew to save the Jews. Because the Jews have zero interest in being saved. God is going to send the non Jew to save the Jews. And that's the point of Samson. Samson is a creation of God who's not Jewish. Samson is somebody who is the ultimate, ultimate outsider, but he has a mission. And the point of this would be. This is actually a very important question in the story of Shimshon. One of the key questions is, 
this behavior of Shimshon, does the text actually condemn it or not? It's a very important point. Do you get a sense that Samson's behavior is condemned? The Mishnah condemns him. Not the Mishnah in Masechet Nazir, but the Mishnah in Masechet Sota. Shimshon Halach Achareinah, says the Mishnah. Mishnah says it. Shimshon was blinded. Why was he blinded? Because he followed his eyes. Because he lusted after the Philistine women. And therefore, Mida Kenegad Mida. It's the example of the Mishnah of Mida Kenegad Mida. The question is, does that shot which emerges from the Mishnah conform to what the text seems to say? So I have some thoughts about that as to whether it conforms or not. I think we could actually... The Mishnah is making an important point. On the other hand, the plain text of the Book of Shoftim does not suggest that he's doing anything wrong. I certainly get no sense whatsoever in the first couple of chapters that Shimshon has done anything wrong. So therefore, the idea of the Nazir then becomes very simply this. This is the point. Why does God need a Nazir over here? And the answer is because God has said, I'm not going to send anybody to save you anymore. And, more importantly, the people have no desire to be saved. That's fine and good. There's only one who desires that the Philistines be given their, uh, their punishments, and that's God. Because the fact of the matter is that the Philistines have taken over Israel, and God resents that. Because whether God's subjects are loyal or disloyal, that's one thing. But at the end of the day, it's still God's subjects, loyal or disloyal. The Philistines are moving in on God's territory. God doesn't want that. The Jews couldn't care less. But God cares. So therefore God creates this person, as it were, this being who's not a non-Jew and not a Jew. I would say this is God's child. And God's child has with it all kinds of interesting implications. There's something curious about Shimshon. Very strange about it. On one hand, he's a supernatural, we'll see about this Shimshon's power. He's a supernatural being. When you think of this guy who's a, almost like a superhero, you know, he's a gigantic power. What, what, when you think about that image of Shimshon, you know, Hercules, I know, Atlas, I don't know what you, what doesn't come to mind, what, what you don't think about right away, if you think about a different phenomenon, different religious institution, prayer. Think about prayer. In the book of Judges, how many people are praying to God? And what's interesting is, there's one person who prays, actually. Twice. That's Shimshon. Shimshon actually prays. He prays when he's dying of thirst, cries out to God, and he prays prior to his death, when he asks God to, uh, to deliver him this one last time. Right? Save me this one last time. An expression that has, carries with it the echo of the earlier statement of the people. Save us one more time. So it's interesting that on one hand he doesn't appear to be a deeply religious person but strangely from the other perspective there's something so connected he's so connected to God it makes total sense because he is God's construction he's God's creation so we have we have over here this very interesting character and what the important point is that what, what, what put us on this path is the missing piece of the puzzle. In other words, the, the pattern was broken. That's what got me to think about this. Once you see that, many interesting things will, will emerge from this chapter. And I'll get to one of the more interesting features of the chapter right now.
the chapter we're talking about, we'll come back to the Nazir again because, because how can you understand Shipshon without confronting the idea of the Nazir? The Nazir, in this chapter, the, the Torah has spent, not the Torah, the Book of Shoftim has spent an entire chapter dealing with Shimshon's birth. This is chapter 13 of Sefer Shoftim. So let's start again. Chapter 13 of Shoftim, and the JPS translation, of course, is on page 527. Let's start again. Let me make it, by the way, we'll get to the one statement about the Philistines, which is a very important statement. God does not like the Philistines. God hates the Philistines. The Philistines have a particular quality that God finds intolerable. So does the reader. They are very into, uh, they're very into taunting. They're very into mocking. They like to not just to defeat their enemies, but to humiliate their enemies. And it doesn't matter who the enemy is, whether it's Shimshon, who they will later on say, bring him after they blind him, let him let him let him play before us. That's Shimshon. Whether it's God, when they capture the Ark of Israel in the beginning of the Book of Shmuel, they capture the Ark. They think they defeated the God of Israel, so they take this Ark. And they place the ark before their own God. Not just enough to defeat Israel, but they have to humiliate God. That was a mistake on their part, but that's what they do. And then, in the next story of Shaul, killed by the Philistines, Shaul kills himself. He's afraid that if they take him alive, they will mock him. That's why he kills himself. And in point of fact, when they come, the Philistines come to the battlefield, they take his body, and they hang it on the walls of Beishan. So they do that. They're very into humiliating, taunting, and whether the enemy is King Saul or Samson or God. So that's a quality that God does not particularly care for. When it comes to God, God can take care of God very well. And God, you know, pays them back. But the fact of the matter is, there's something about the Plishtim that's very unpleasant. So we understand why God would not care for the Philistines. That's obvious. In any event, but no one else seems to care. And now we have a story that appears in many other biblical narratives. A story of birth. In this case, a childless couple that God is going to give them a child. When you read a story like this, what comes to, obviously, what comes to mind is the other stories. First of all, three of them are found in the foundational text of our, of our tradition, which is the book of Genesis. You have stories of women, in that case it's women, who don't have children. In the case of Yitzvah, oh, and Abram as well, I suppose, the couple doesn't have children, but the focus is on the woman. Then you have Rachel as well. Of the four matriarchs, the three of them don't have children right away. So we have that whole uh, set of stories in Breshit about the woman who can't have a child, and there is another very important story, a sister story to, to, to this chapter, which is the story that appears in the very first chapter of the book of Shmuel, the story of Chana, which has all kinds of parallels to the story over here. When you have these parallel stories, it's always two, two things. One is, look at the parallels, 
but we always look for the differences. And there's something extremely striking about the story over here of Shimshon's parents. We'll get to it in a second. It's obvious, but nonetheless, we have to say it. There was a man from Tzara, from the tribe of Dun. His name is Manoah. His wife was barren, she had no children. The angel of God appeared to the woman. Interesting. The angel of God starts by saying, there's a man named Manoah. So you, you would expect in the next verse that the angel would appear to the man. That's what you would expect, right? But the angel does not appear to the man. The angel appears to the woman. Behold, says the angel, the Malach, you are barren, but you will conceive and give birth to a, to a child. Now let me tell you, be careful. Don't drink wine or hard drink and don't eat tabei. So we have the command, we have the appearance, the, the, the announcement of the birth, the charge given to the woman, and the mission is, is mentioned. What the point of all this is, your child will deliver Israel from the Philistines. The husband was introduced in the very beginning is seemingly kept out of this whole story, is unaware. So the woman then goes to the husband. What is missing here in the story? What is, what is not here? That's correct. There is no request for a child. When you read the book of Breshiv, okay, what is the dominant motif in Breshiv, whether it's Sarah who goes to Abraham and says, listen, I can't have children, take my maidservant, Maybe I'll be built up through her. That's the first story. And the story of Hagar. Difficult story. Then you have... Then you have the story of Rachel. The story of Rachel. Then you have... She again goes to Yaakov. Havali Banim. And Rachel goes through many different things. You know, it's, she has Yaakov and she gives Yaakov her servant. And the story of the, of the, of the, of the mandrakes... And I believe the story of the Trophim, they're all for the purpose of having children. She dies in childbirth. In the case of Yitzchak, and Rivka is different, but there, Yitzchak is praying for, for Rivka. In each of the cases, there's some kind of intercession or requested intercession. And two of them on the part of the woman. Only in the case of Yitzchak does he proactively pray for, for his wife. There's a different relationship there. Yeah. She never named, right. Which is sort of ironic in a way. Because, right. Ironic in the sense that, clearly, when you read the story, Manoah is one gigantic zero over here. And at best, the zero, or negative. But there's something about that which is very important. I'll, I'll get to that. It's a good, it's a good point. We'll, we'll get to that. In any event, what is missing is the request. When you think about it, it's sort of... Con- dovetails of what I mentioned earlier. 
the request is missing on two levels in the story. There's no request on part of the people to be delivered, and there's no request on part of the couple to have a child. There's an enormous passivity over here. There's no people are perfectly happy with the way things are, either because they don't think things can ever change, because they, because they, because uh, dream, as we say, you know, what you make the best of it or whatever. But it is very striking, especially in light of the other stories, that you would expect some kind of request. In the case of Chana, by the way, it's even more striking. In the case of Chana, there you have a situation which breaks all the previous stories. Because in that story, you have the woman herself, the husband has no interest. He couldn't care less. I mean, he's given up. But in the case of Chana, you have the woman on her own who's praying. That we never find. You have Isaac praying for Rebecca, but you don't have Rebecca praying for herself. And in the case of Chana, we have the woman who prays for herself. Despite the fact that the husband seems to be uninterested, kind of Manoah character. He's a lovely guy, but he doesn't seem to be interested. So over here, we have the charge given to the woman, and the man is kept out of the picture totally. So now the woman, the anonymous woman, no name, Fatavoa Isha, Ishwelohimbo so the woman informs the husband about what is trans- what has taken place, and she says to him that this one who came to her, right? She recognizes the fact that this is a divine messenger. No rabba od, very frightening. She says, "I didn't ask him his name, and he didn't tell me," which I presume is a reference, oblique reference to the story of Jacob wrestling with the ish. Jacob then does ask his name. What is your name? Why do you ask my name? Why do you ask my name? And Jacob understands. I have seen God face to face. The, the divine messenger has no name because he has no he has no significant existence apart from the, the mission. That's the point. So someone on a mission, someone came to me, a divine mission. Well she does not tell the husband, she does tell the husband in terms of the restrictions. What she didn't tell the husband is the what the is the is the mission. The husband is not told the mission. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned before that one of the main difficulties that she's not a temporary idea. She said that Yoko felt you find it significant that she's the one who adds that in and it wasn't mentioned originally with Ma uh, It's significant. I don't know what to make of that. It's it's a it's a good point. I mean I, I it probably is related to the fact that he's born in nausea. In other words, it's not... The reason you can get out of Nazirah, I presume, is because you took it on. Since you created it, you could also uncreate it. But if you're born in Nazir, there's no way to get out of it. Because you, in a sense, you can't undo it. In, in other words, because that's who you are. So she, she, that, that's her understanding of it. The fact that the messenger of God didn't say this is a good point. Your point is well taken. I, I presume that... Our understanding is since it's since minabetin, since it's even before he's born. The point being, he's born in Nazir. So if you're born in Nazir and, and you didn't create it in any way, you have no right to get out of it. There's no way to get out of it, actually. So 
vocational nausea. An ontological and an ontological nausea vocational. Vocational means with particular Right. The standard Nazir in the Chumash, and that's the understanding of the Talmud, obviously, Nazirut is a kind of nether. And by the way, it has all kinds of halachic implications to it, because if something is a nether, you can be shawel on a nether. You can go to a... I mean, the, the Bible doesn't know from, from, from the Hattaras to the Darim, but the point is, with that tradition, the idea of a knowing a vow, is a very central idea in, the, in, the, in that tradition. Since Nazirut is a vow, you can you can know it. You, you become a nausea. It's too difficult or whatever. You go to the court. You go to the chacham. You say I, I didn't realize it. So it's like any nether. You can get out of it every nether. It's shayla in the darim. I'm not saying the Bible knows from that, but I'm saying is that what's clear in the Torah is that it's something you take upon yourself. But if you don't take it upon yourself, then presumably it's just who you are. You can't change who you are, and therefore there's no way to get out of it. That's our understanding. From interesting is something else that you emphasize the verse from the from the womb until the day of his death. There's something interesting about another parallel of Joseph and Shimshon actually, which we will revisit, which is this: Shimshon is a nazir from the womb till the day of his death. One might say Joseph is also a nazir. Joseph is I don't mean that technically, but Joseph is separate from his brothers the end of his life. The last story in the Chumash, the brothers go to Joseph and say, take us as your slaves, thinking he's going to kill them. Joseph cries, I, don't, I have no intention to do that. But you know what he says? After I die, many years from now, I instruct you to take me back with you. In other words, the unification of Joseph and the brothers takes place after he's dead. What's interesting is what the text says about Shimshon. After Shimshon died, in the, the last chapter of Shimshon, chapter, what is it, chapter 16, I believe, right? At the end of chapter 16, there's something curious about that, which is, 556, verse 31. Israel Shana. There you have interesting parallel. During his lifetime, he's separate. But after he dies, after he dies, they took his body and they buried him in the grave of Manoah, his father. So there you get the sense, like Joseph, okay, during his life he's not reunited. But he's reunited with his brothers, as it were, or his father and brothers, after his death. And that's similar to Joseph. Joseph is not reunited in his lifetime. But after his death, he is reunited. He says, someday you, burn, someday you take my body back. And in the book of Yoshua, which describes Joseph's being buried with the brothers, where is Joseph actually buried? It's very striking. He's buried in the city of Shechem. The city he was supposed to go to in the first place. It didn't work out. He's buried in Shechem. So there is a sense, actually, that even in the case of Joseph and Shimshon, he's not forever separate from his brothers. The idea is, but sometimes... It's easier sometimes to connect when the personality is gone. Sometimes it's easy to to reincorporate. That would be another interesting parallel of the Nazir Shimshon and Joseph was called twice the Nazir. In any event, what we have over here very strikingly is so the woman instructs the husband without minus the mission. Yep. 
Um, why is um, the fact that Food when that's for everyone. I mean, the Nazir has the restrictions that apply to haircutting and that right. uh, people, but not about food. Right. What it sounds like is that, I mean, the question about whatever that means, I don't know. That's a good question because that presumably is not limited to the Nazir, but the point of the angel would be that when you eat, your diet affects your child. In other words, she cut her hair. She can get a, she get a haircut. Because her haircut doesn't relate to him. But since her body is nourishing this child, so, A, he can't be nourished from wine and the things that... But beyond that, perhaps, there's an additional, perhaps an additional, maybe, an additional requirement that even though you're not allowed to eat tamay in general, but in this particular case, you have to be especially careful because the child that is born, right, is the Nazir, and the Torah called the Nazir Kadosh. Right? The Nazir is holy. When you think about holiness, Shimshon doesn't necessarily jump to mind. But the fact of the matter is that that is what the Torah, that is how the Torah describes the Nazir, Kadosh, holy, separate. So maybe there's an additional point over here, apart from the general prohibitions, whatever they were, it's very unclear in the Chumash, actually. When you read the Chumash, it's not totally clear some of these eating restrictions, whether they, in the Peshat of the Chumash, apply equally to everybody, maybe apply specifically to, to priests. It's not really totally clear. But in any event, uh, and what does Tamei mean over here? Does Tamei mean forbidden foods? Or does Tamei mean foods that have obtained Tuba? It's not clear. But in any event, I would say that the key point is that what you eat matters for your child, since the child, before, even before the child is born, he's a nausea before, before birth, actually. Minabetet. That's mean from birth. He's a nausea even before birth. To emphasize the not, that he's not choosing anything. Something imposed from without. God imposed it upon him. Is that fair? Is it not fair? Good question. That's the reality. So now Manoah has been informed by his wife about this child. But yet, time Manoah Hashem. Now Manoach prays to God. Vayomer, be Adonai. Yishra Elohim asher shalachta yovona oleleinu v'yoreinu manasel ganar hayulad. So Manoach, it's interesting, he seems to be asking the question that the wife doesn't tell him. This child's going to be born. What should we do for the child? Okay, he's going to be born. He's going to be a Nazir. But what, what does that imply? Right? How do we act with the child that is to be born? Very interesting verse. God listened to Manoach. God sends this person, this angel being, whatever, comes to the woman, and the Manoach, the husband, is not with her. Now, what's actually very striking, you know, first of all, you would expect God, to, if Manoah is asking the question, one would have expected that God sent the angel to Manoah. That doesn't happen. But now it is God not sending it to Manoah, God sends the angel, right? It's interesting, the first time it says, Vayirama Hashem Elayisha, the angel appeared to the woman. 
But in verse number uh, 9, it's And not only does he go, the angel go to the woman, but goes to the Sadeh, and the husband's not there, of all things. Now here's the point. First of all, the term Vayovo El Ha'isha is often sexual. Often. Zakovich noted that, by the way, without understanding it, because he didn't understand the first point. <coughs> the point is, it is, it's about fathering the child. In other words, the sense of, was not to go to the field where the husband's not there? Speaking about Nazir, he reminds us of the previous parasha, which is Sota. Right? The whole point of the previous parasha of the Chumash is that the jealous husband suspects his wife because the, she is some place where he's where she's where, where she's hidden from him. Here, uh, God sets it up. God sends despite the fact that the response is to is to Manoach's request. It's very strange. So, what it sounds like in the story is that it's that Dafka God is not answering Manoach. It's that Dafka the angel is avoiding Manoah. This, for whatever reason, God has zero interest in Manoah. Now why is that? What do we make of the fact like, that, um, yes? That's like in Hagar. Hagar is crying, but God hears the child. True, and what do you make of it? Maybe emphasizing that Hagar is, you know, what obviously is not the right... Oh, in the story of Hagar, it's right. She's cries, he doesn't cry. God is hearing the cry of the one that's not that story, that's true. In other words, the point would be then, if I follow your reasoning, the, pro- the point is that, my, my, let's assume that in this society, because that's how it's, the society is essentially a patriarchal society, it's a male society. In other words, what Manoach represents the, 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 the society. God has zero interest in, in, this, in this particular society, zero. <coughs> And therefore, God is not going to actually respond directly to Manoah in the first place. God is not responding to Manoah or to the Jewish people in this case, and don't want help anyway. What God is doing is proactively acting for God's own best interests, which don't involve Manoah. They involve a child who represent God's interests. God has chosen this particular woman to bear God's child. That's what it sounds like, actually. It, is, it reminds me of something else, actually. It reminds me of is it the Pshuto Shomikra? Reminds me of the story of uh, Abraham and Isaac. Abraham and Isaac, God has told Abraham already that he's going to have a child. Abraham laughs. Would that Yishmael live before you? The very next story, God is sending these messengers, these angels, Anoshim they call, to Abraham again. But the specific question is. Where is your wife Sarah? It's clear that it's not to tell Abraham because Abraham already knows. It's clear that somehow it's for Sarah to overhear, and when she overhears, she actually laughs. She, she laughs. How's it possible? My husband's so old. I'm so old. And God says, it "Sounds like to Abraham. Why is she laughing? Why is she laughing? Do you think God can can God do anything? Is anything impossible? God can do miracles." By this time next year, you'll have a child. That's what happens. 
Sarah gives birth at that same time. What does Sarah say when she gives birth? Atomah Sarah. Sechoka Sali Elohim. What is the meaning of Tzachok HaSali Elohim? What do you mean? Tzachok HaSali Elohim Pshuto Shalmikra Tzachok HaSali Elohim The word Tzachok, by the way, in the Chumash often has a sexual meaning often It's Tzachek, right? What it sounds like in the Chumash actually is this It's actually impossible for Sarah to have a child It's not possible She's too old. She says so. It's only possible if it's a supernatural birth. What the Chumash is doing, actually, don't take this the wrong way, but it's attributing, it's attributing the birth to God. That's what she says. means that God has fathered this child. And actually, it's very striking in the Chumash that the Chumash, when it comes to Hagar, Abraham el, 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 el Hagar Vatar. He went unto Hagar. Never says that was Sarah. He always says she gave birth for Abraham. It never says There's something about the story. The Chumash wants to emphasize. It actually has very interesting implications that Isaac is a miraculous birth. In some sense, Yitzchak is God's child, which may be related to the Akedah when God demands his child back. But there's something about the story over here which is very similar, which is God has zero interest in Manoah, who turns out about everything else is a complete idiot, but that's besides, that's a separate issue. That's clear. The guy's a fool, obviously. You see from the story, the writer of this story is making fun of Manoah. But apart from that, there's something else. Why would God deal with Manoah in the first place? God has no interest. And therefore, when he says, please tell me, tell me, tell me, and Dafka when he's not there. In other words, Waiting for the moment where he's not around. Basadev, all things. Monoch Isha Inima. And then the angel repeats, right? In verse number 10. That same man has come back. And now Monoch is going to deal with this Malach, of course. Totally wrong, but he's going to deal with the Malach. He followed his wife. Are you the one that doesn't trust his wife? Are you the one that spoke to my wife? I am. May your words come true, says. What rules shall be observed for the boy? Repeats it. Whatever I told the woman, you do. Be careful. So what is the Malach doing over here? He says nothing new on any level. He says... Everything I told the woman is true. All the rules. He doesn't answer about the mission. He doesn't answer about the upbringing. He answers nothing, actually. He says, the only thing you have to know is one thing. Everything I commanded her. So you see in the text, it's actually an important point. You see the degree to which he's being kept out of the loop. The degree to which we don't care about Manoah. He's irrelevant to us. We only care about one thing, which is this child 
the woman bearing this particular kind of child who is the Nazir Elohim. By the way, I would add something else over here in terms of what I said about the Nazir, which is this. The Nazir, when the angel first speaks to the woman, he says two things. He says, first of all, he says, you have to be careful what you eat. Because the child is a Nazir from, from, the, from the womb, from before birth. But then he added something else, which is very striking. He says, Umorav Yalel Roshel. He's not allowed to cut his hair. No razor shall, 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 shall cut his hair. And what's interesting is, of course, the cutting of the hair, that's found in the Torah. That's one of the things the Nazarite may not do. It's what seems to be singled out over here. The one thing that's singled out in terms of Shibjan himself is the hair, which will be the critical symbol. But I wanted just to raise a broader question about Shimshon, which is this. He's not the only person in the Bible about whom we're told he can't cut his hair. There's, there were two others, actually. One explicitly, and one, I think, maybe implicitly, that the cutting of the hair is a problem. The one who's explicit, it's very striking. Who's that person? Very important, actually. Shmuel. This is not a small thing. Shmuel. When Chana, right? When Chana is praying for a child, Chana says, those two stories are linked. Maybe we'll get to that next week. The two stories are linked. Chana says about her child to be born, Now, the text never calls Shmuel the Nazir. The Mishnah seems to suggest it. The, te- the text of the Bible never says explicitly Shmuel is a Nazir, but it does say, no razor shall... We don't think of Samuel as a Nazir, but, but that's what it says. What does that mean? What, how do we understand this idea? The third person that's very interesting in terms of not cutting his hair, he actually did cut his hair periodically. Who's that? Well, Yosef never says one thing about his hair. That's the Medrash. The Sal, by the way, the Medrash. The Sal Sel Basaro. The Medrash picked it up. He's always playing with his hair. The Sal Sel Basaro. The Medrash understood the Nazir of Joseph that way. It's a Medrash. But it's a good Medrash, you know? It's a Pshad. The Salsel Basaro, the self involvement. Your father's in mourning and you're standing in front of the mirror making, the, making up your hair. The Salsel Basaro, I'm going to get you in trouble. And the South, the, the, that's the, the self involvement of the Nazir. That's what's problematic. Abshalom. Abshalom has very long hair. He, does, he cuts his hair once a year. He makes a big ceremony of it. Maybe we'll get to that. That's actually very important. Interesting is the Mishnah actually plays with all three. If we have time for the Mishnah, it's very, the Mishnah plays with it. The Mishnah starts with, starts with uh, Shibshon and, and ends with, with Shmuel actually. Mishnah and Masechet Nazir. In the middle you have Abshalom there as well, I believe. So what does it mean not to cut your hair? What does that mean actually? Let's just stop. What does it mean not to cut your hair? Umarallah Yalal Roshel. What does that mean? What is the idea for the hair, actually? See, the hair is interesting. The hair is the part of your body you can actually, for the most part, maneuver. You can actually do things with it. In other words, the hippies, you know what I mean? The, the point is, the hair is the part of the body you can actually fashion any way you want. And 
the idea of not cutting your hair. Let's say the case of Samuel. Well, wouldn't it also mean in terms of Shinshan that anybody, everything else wouldn't be visible to others, but the long hair would make it like that. That's true. That's a good point. It could be, it could be that. It could be the visibility. Yeah, she said. She said that the cutting of the not cutting one's hair means that you stand out. Means that you. I think that's the point. We're saying the same thing. In other words, the idea of being different. The point of Chana. Chana has praise to this child. After she has the child, she gives him away. I'm going to give him away. I'm going to dedicate him to God. She says. But the point of Chana, and that's a very important point, which is very much related to Shimshon. What Chana is saying is that. I will dedicate my child to God. In fact, she sends him to, to, to work in Shiloh, to Bedeli. But her point is, he's going to be in Shiloh, but he's not going to be part of Shiloh. He's going to be different. That's the point of, of Shmuel. Samuel's way of service is different from everybody else. He goes his own path. He's, in a certain sense, the ultimate outsider is Shmuel. And Shimshon is, of course, the outsider. So the idea of Morav Yarel Roshel, Part of it is the outsider, part of it could be determined as, which the Gemara picked up in the case of Shmuel, he's a, he's a, he's a kind of rebel. He's a kind of anti-authoritarian figure. It's certainly true of our third character, Absalom, who's the ultimate anti-authority figure. He does try to kill his father. That's, 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 so the point is, there's something very interesting about the Morava Yahweh Rosho. In the case of Shimshon, I would say, it's not that he's not from, you know what I mean? He's the firmest guy who ever lived. The only thing is, he has a different set of rules. You can't judge him by the normal rules. He doesn't have to keep those rules, not for him. That's the point of Shimshon. That's the radical point over here. He's not to be faulted for what he does, as long as he adheres to his rules. He has one rule, to serve his God by fighting God's enemies. Now, when he gets into trouble, though, is when he betrays the trust. That's when he gets into trouble. He's put in a very difficult situation gets into trouble when he falls in love. That gets you in deep trouble. But the point is, as long as he keeps to the rules that God has set up for Shimshon, to be the Nazir, to be the faithful one, to be the outsider and the rebel, no problem. It's the moment that he moves to some degree to the other side. Consorts with the enemy. He doesn't use the enemy. He loves the enemy. That's a problem. As we'll see next week, it's very interesting. We'll continue next week with this, and there's a lot more here, but uh, okay, it's good to it's good to be here. Uh, have these little classes, so we'll continue next week with Shimshon. We'll finish this chapter and forward.